Broadcasting live from the offices of policebackground.net. This is the Police Applicant Podcast with your host, Ken Royball. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Police Applicant Podcast. This is episode 14. As always, I'm here with my amazing co-host, Christine. I was all, who's that? (laughs) That's you. That's you, Christine. It's me. So, and I said this is episode 14. I've taken to writing those down because I forget. One time we put it, one time I said, oh, we're episode so-and-so, and and I go later to publish it, and it's the the same episode as the one before. So I got to write that down. I'm getting old. So uh, today is pretty cool because um, we not only have a super, a super spectacular special guest, but <laughs> this is this is something that uh, one of my friends uh, suggested we do for the for the applicant podcast. It's called um, a day in the life. So we're gonna we're gonna take uh, we're gonna interview people or or uh, retired or active officers from different jobs in police work, and we're gonna see what it's like. It's kind of like it's kind of like a virtual ride along uh, to see what. Uh, uh, what the officers do on a day-to-day basis. And today, today's episode is a day in the life homicide detective, oh, homicide man. detective. And with us is, uh, uh, is uh, one of my super, super good friends, retired LAPD detective three. That's a supervisor of detectives. Uh, David Escoto. David, how are you? Jen, I'm doing good. How are you? Hi, Christine. So good. How's it going? Good, good. Excited to have you. So I'll Thank tell you a little you. story for our, our listeners. Uh, Dave and I, we go back uh, so many years, so many years to 1983. Um, I was walking in the parking lot at Wilshire Station uh, working patrol, and I saw this amazing, amazing Adonis, <laughs> handsome police officer, and I said, Oh my goodness! I feel like crap because she's just so amazing. <laughs> and uh, it turned out it was Davis Scotto, nineteen and eighty-three, and he was working patrol. Ken had a crush on you. <laughs> and I, uh, he told like me it. that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so somewhere around, uh, what year did you start at Backgrounds? Uh, I started working Backgrounds in uh, two thousand thirteen. 2013 July of 2013 so I don't know why one of the one of the supervisors of backgrounds came up to me and says hey there's a guy that's uh, LEPD uh is going to be a background investigator you want to train him I go who is it Davis go to Davis go to you. <laughs> and I, so I I trained him and uh I trained you in backgrounds how to do backgrounds so you're really good at it but you, you know what you never trained me uh to do uh homicides well, that's because uh, all the bodies are buried in the hills behind me, so we can't find them. <laughs> <laughs> They're gone. So we're going to delve into uh, into Dave's experience. I just, you know, when uh, when I was working patrol and we were out, we were, we went back to the station. Uh, it was late at night. You know, many many nights there was downtime because your partner's writing a report. I already booked the suspect into jail. I didn't have nothing to do, so I would scurry back to the detective table and I'd open some of the murder books and oh, Christine, yeah. do you know what a murder book is? I don't know, but I think you should tell me. I'm going to let Dave tell us what a murder book is. What it's a, uh, it's a three ring binder and uh, 
it has dividers in it and when you get a murder you, you go out to the scene and uh investigate you do all the crime scene uh the maps and everything else and then you just start putting everything into the murder book and the first thing is the chrono the chronological order so you know you, everything you do you document because once you solve this murder uh, you know the only defense is attacking the police so these uh, defense attorneys just come at us and right. you know, we got to have everything our, our ducks got to be in line so it, it's just a matter of uh getting trained right and you know doing the murder book getting everything in there it, it'll have crime scene photos it'll have uh, uh what you did that day um, the autopsy report autopsy photos just everything you need sometimes it goes into two three books but usually it's just one one three ring binder, a three inch three ring binder. They're they're pretty interesting though. The murder book trilogy. Yeah, murder book yes, trilogy. Yes. <laughs> and and I, I tell you, one of the most uh, one of the most interesting things is the is the photos. And the, yeah. The, okay. yeah, we'll we'll get into this a little bit more. But um, but I just want to preface this interview with uh, if you guys, I'm sure you can go on the internet because everything's on the internet and look up you know Google murder scenes or something like that. But I'm telling you, homicide detectives see some of the most awful things that human beings to do to each other. Uh, yeah, so it, it's crazy. When I was doing that Citizens Academy, I think I mentioned it to you, Ken. I did a Citizens Academy mm. here, like locally. <laughs> and it's pretty cool that they did that, but they were I was eating a bean and cheese burrito because it was after work and I hadn't eaten yet. And I was eating a bean and cheese burrito while they were showing us murder photos. And one of them looked at me and they were like, I think you're ready. (laughs) (laughs) Some people, it doesn't, it doesn't bother them. Yeah. It, it, uh, I could look at a dead body all day long, but, uh, I can't touch them. I, I I won't touch them. I don't, I've never helped the uh, coroner, uh, text, uh, put the body on the gurney or, or anything like that. I think the smell, the smell would be what gets you. Yeah. It's, it's unforgettable. I mean, yeah. it's a very distinct, even, you know, like a fresh murder, or especially the ones when you go in a couple of days later, those are pretty or bad. Where it, or when it's 119 degrees outside. Yeah. <laughs> it's been sitting there for three days. Oh, can, yeah. can you remember at Wilshire division? There was a cigar shop, an old Cuban guy, <laughs> uh, Leon. Right on sixth street. So, yeah. Six and Western. Yeah. We, we used to have 10, 12 cigars in, in our cars. So when we get those nasty murders, you know, we can yeah. light up a cigar just to cover up the smell. But well, Leon, Leon was good. The patrol used to have, uh, we either used to, you'd run into someone who had cigars. Johnny Padilla used to have cigars. Oh, Johnny, and, yeah. Or otherwise we'd carry a, a, a little uh, container of Vicks VapoRub. Yeah. Just oh, put it right under your, your nose. Lip. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. But there, you know, that touching the bodies, man. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, I, I never touched the body, but when I was on probation and a few times on patrol, I had to help. You know, the coroner would send one guy. Like, I want to go do cradle. I'm not going to pick him up with you. But we had to pick up the sheet and put him on the gurney. And uh, uh, that was, I just didn't like that because I would think I, I used to think that if there was a dead body laying there and you got too close, they would wake up and, and spit <laughs> death on you. And then yeah. I didn't like that. Uh, I didn't like there was no way I was going to be in a room. Oh, partner, I'm going to go get something in the car. No, I'm going with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, um, I, was, I was a boot at Rampart and uh, a probationer. And uh, the coroner needed help with the gurney. This is the only time I did it. And we had to go down the steps. And 
I was, you know, I was the rookie. So my partner had me go first and we're bringing this body downstairs. And so you're I walking could, backwards. Uh, yeah, backwards. And I could see the body slipping towards me. So I'm going, no, no. I'm not getting paid enough for this. So, oh, uh, my gosh. Between Dave and I, we probably have enough uh, dead body stories. Um, this, let's get started because I, I, we're going to get into some murder stories, you guys. So, but, but first, um, I feel bad Dave, that I'm excited about this. <laughs> it's interesting. It's like it is. It is. It's like liking Law and Order SVU, and you're like, I don't. This is bad. Like you feel bad yeah. liking it because it's awful things, but it's just interesting. It's 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 good stuff. Yeah, I I, I went to the murder calls on patrol that I got called to. But Dave went to every murder call. <laughs> That's yeah. the he's seen tons more stuff than I have ever seen. Seen, but um, you know, we didn't. Uh, oh, I saw some stuff on the in the murder books that man, some gosh awful things, man. But people are just when they're angry and all that kind of stuff. Oh, whoa! Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that, and and Christine will. Christine's like shaking in her seat, you know. <laughs> She's like, I can't wait to hear this. Um, but this is this is good stuff because uh, because uh, homicide detectives have a, a. It's not an easy life to be a homicide detective, and then you're um, on LAPD. You're a, a detective one, a detective two, and then you're the detective three. You're the guy. Dave was the guy that that supervised all the murder detectives, all the homicide detectives. Um, so Dave, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. How did you even get into police work and then, uh, all the way up through, uh, to be a supervisor of detectives? Well, I, I, um, for years, I always wanted to, to apply to be a police officer, but, uh, I was working, uh, I went to college, uh, I was a college dropout, went to UCLA for two years and couldn't afford it anymore. And, the second year, my car broke down, so I had to hitchhike from Almani to to Westwood every day, and then hitchhike home and uh, do homework and stuff. So it just got to be a hassle. So uh, I finally got a summer job and stayed there for ten years, and uh, worked my way up to a salesman, and uh, we used to sell pool products and pool equipment for Purex, by the way, the, the pool products division. And uh, the one Wait, year, by the way. Rate- we're not getting any sponsorships from Purex. Uh, no, no. <laughs> but when, uh, when interest rates uh, went up to about 19, 20%, when, um, not to get political, but when Carter was president, you remember that, Ken? Mm-hmm. Um, nobody was putting pools in their backyards because nobody was taking a second out on their home to put in a $50,000 pool. So I figured it. I was getting old. I was 29 years old, 28 at the time. I better apply. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> my uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, um, her dad was a police captain with LAPD. He was a captain three, and he told me, "Hey, Dave, it doesn't cost anything to apply. Now's the time to do it." So I applied, uh, got hired, July 1981. I went into the academy. Um, <laughs> behind you, you were in 1980, right, Ken? Uh yeah, April 1980. Okay, then from there, uh, did my six months in the academy. Um, Got sent to Rampart Division, did a year there. Uh, got sent to Jail Division mm-hmm. for seven months. Uh, from Jail Division to Wilshire's when I met Ken, the famous Ken, my buddy. <laughs> buddy. Uh, worked Wilshire, stayed there uh, 
till 85 and I left and went to Van Nuys Division Patrol. I wanted to try something different. I wanted to try the San Fernando Valley. So I went to Van Nuys and six months later, um, training officer job came up at Wilshire. I took an oral, got the job, came back. Uh, about six months you later, missed me. I missed you. You missed me is why. Yeah. But six months later, um, Vice approached me and asked me if I wanted to come over on loan. So I went and worked uh, on loan with Vice because the Vice tour is only 18 months. You can't work more than 18 months in Vice unless you're on loan. They don't count those months. So I worked about eight months on loan, then took an oral and got a Vice spot. Stayed there for another year and a half. And then uh, went back to patrol, got a detective trainee spot, worked uh, most of the tables. I worked uh, robbery, auto theft, uh, burglary. And then uh, they asked me if I wanted to uh, come over to homicide. So I went to homicide as a detective trainee and got uh, teamed up with uh, my training officer, Frank Bishop. Francis. Francis, yeah. The infamous <laughs> Francis Bishop. So he... Uh, that was, uh, gosh, that was probably in 80, 86, maybe 87. And um, he just said, hey, uh, here's a murder book. It's an unsolved case. Look through it. See what you can do with it. So I'm looking through it, and I see that the, the murder victim was a prostitute. Um, and they suspected uh, her boyfriend, and they only had a first name on him. but And they couldn't ID him. They suspected him of killing her. She was found in an alleyway uh, in a trash bag by a trash can. And um, so working vice, I knew that uh, if she was a prostitute, she'd probably been arrested once or twice. Right. And probably uh, was at Civil Brand, which was the, the women's uh, sheriff's jail where they held them for, for court. Went over there and asked him, hey, can I look through your records? I, I want to find this, uh, this woman who's been arrested. I want to see who's visited her. So they took us into a room and there was just piles and piles of uh, cardboard boxes filled with uh, visitation slips. And he said, they're just by year. They're not in alphabetical order or anything. But yeah. it took us a couple of days and we found her and we found the guy and it was the same first name. Went, got him, brought him in, booked him for murder. Uh, I bet you I bet you remember what his first name was. I do. I do. <laughs> and uh, I he... The DA wouldn't file charges on him, so we had to let him go. But he he was the guy, you know, because she was last seen getting into his motorhome on Washington Boulevard. and uh, Just, uh, it was tragic. I mean, what a way to go, just strangled and put in a trash bag and thrown by a dumpster. But, uh, you know, we solved the case, but uh, didn't get a, a trial. So that was my first one, my very first one. You know, so I, I, I remember... I'm sorry. No, no. I, I was just gonna say I got a taste of uh, of what it takes to file a case and, and what a district attorney wants to file charges. So it's, it's pretty yeah. Tough. I remember being in the academy and they're going, okay, when you uh, when you arrest someone, you have to say, I'm placing you under arrest or <laughs> yeah. blah blah blah. And that was and I remember, you know, on patrol, I, I go click click. I'm placing you under arrest, and so. <laughs> If they, it's kind of like this thing, man, where you're I'm doing this thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, can't, yeah. I can't imagine. Did you ever, when you first put the cuffs on some on a on a murder subject, you say you're under arrest for murder? Uh, did, you, if, did you tell him that? 
Not not all the time. We we just say, hey, you you know, you're under arrest. You're coming with us, and you know, you don't have to read them the rights unless mm-hmm. you're going to start asking them incriminating questions. So you know, we put them in the car and drive up and down Washington Boulevard with them, let them look at the crime scene and on the way to the, the station. And then when you start asking direct questions, that's when you have to read them as rights. And, and he didn't, he didn't waive his rights. So we couldn't really question him too much, but so, yeah, you're, you're right. You don't have to tell them you're under arrest for this or that. The, they you know, know what they're under arrest for. Interesting. It's just, uh, you know what, everybody watches TV shows and it's uh, it's one of those things where on the TV show, they put the cuffs on and as they're walking them to the police car, you have the right to remain silent. Yeah, and I look at that and I go, Oh my gosh, Dave, uh, tell, tell the, for, for the people who just to dispel this myth, what are, what are the rules for actually, because you know, there, there's all, there's, you always hear this thing where people are under arrest and they, they go, you have to read me my rights. Yeah, and what, right. what's the, what's the deal with reading people their rights? Well, only if you're going to start questioning them about the crime and, I mean, you can tell them, um, you know, I'm, uh, you could say you're under arrest for murder and, uh, they'll say, well, who, you know, who this and that, and well, you know, you know who, you, who it was until you start asking them incriminating direct questions. That's when you have to read them the rights. I used to, there are people that would say, you have to bring me my rights. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> I don't want to yeah, ask you right, anything. Yeah. So I'm not going to uh, read you your rights. But yeah, uh, they, they may say something incriminating on the way to the station. Yeah. So, yeah. You know. And you don't, you don't want that. One time I arrested someone who confessed to me something about something, a burglary she did in, in uh, Florida. And I got subpoenaed uh, by the Florida state attorney. I flew out to Florida no kidding. and I was just going to go to court. And as soon as she found out I was there, the, the DA goes, nah, she doesn't want, she, she copped out now because you're here. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned from that that I don't want to talk to you. So yeah, yeah. Um, leave it to the detectives. Yeah. So how do you, how does uh, somebody who's, I know people that, that they get on the job because they want to be a detective. Right. And how do you become a detective? Do you just apply for it or how does it work? Uh, after four years on the job, you can apply for a detective spot. And then uh, what it consists of is uh, you take a test and it's, uh, you know, questions regarding detective work. You pass that test, you get an oral. And it's usually in front of a, a civilian and a couple of captains. And You take that oral and then you're graded on that and then you're ranked uh, according to your oral score and your uh, written score. And then uh, like say you're, you rank the say there was 400 people that passed everything they put them in uh ranks you know one through ten groups one through ten so everybody that scored 100 to 90s in group one uh 89 to 80 group two you know and so forth and they start taking from the top whenever detectives needed they'll take the number one person if another one's needed they'll take the number two person and, and uh that's how it works but you um just like a sergeant you need four years on the job. Once you have four years on the job, you can apply. But I don't know if it's changed. If you need a college degree now to, to apply mm. for a, a sergeant or detective, I, I don't believe so. But I think it's a lieutenant and above. You have to have a, a college degree. I so could be if, wrong. If Christine wanted to be a detective and you know, I and, and something as simple as backgrounds, people would go in and, and say, well, I did 
I was never a detective, but I, w- I used to investigate crime scenes all the time. I was a patrol officer, and yeah. I was an investigator. But, um, but just being in patrol doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go, oh, well, you were in patrol. Everybody's in patrol. Yeah. What do you what would Christine if she wanted to be a detective, what would be some of the tips you would give her going on into the job if that was her goal to become a detective? I would go into detectives and ask them for uh, for ride alongs or, hey, when when you're going to go do a crime scene, can I go when you're going to have an autopsy? Can I go uh, if, if you want to be a burglary detective, go to the burglary table and ask that supervisor, hey, uh, you know, is there anything I can do? Can can I. Uh, can I learn to take fingerprints? Can I do this or that? And you know, just just prepare yourself for that type of work. And uh, it helps it helps in your oral, especially if you get by the detective test. I uh, I went the route of back when I was uh, when we were at Wilshire, we had trainees, which they don't have anymore. Detective trainees. So I I actually worked as a trainee for two years. Um, the test the detective test is every two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, after my second year as a trainee, it just so happened the test came up at, at that point. I took the test and, and passed and, and then, um, got ranked high enough where I made detective, you know, soon after, uh, the list came out, the detective list. And, um, uh, that, that's where it all started at Wilshire. And there's a, there's a lot of agencies like smaller agencies, sheriff's departments that don't actually have a detective rank. No, they're uh, sergeants. They're a sergeants. Are, a lot of them are sergeants. Yeah. Or it's a, it's um, I think like the LA County sheriffs, they have a, um, it's not a step increase. It's a classification hmm. uh, uh, okay. where there are two stripers, uh, but then they're assigned to some kind of investigative uh, capacity. Okay, um, yeah. Christine, out by where you are, is that the same way? Do you know, or? Um, no, there's, uh, depending on the agency that you work for there, there's the detective rank. For, and do you know if they have the testing or anything, or is it just? Yeah, from what I've heard, it's it's similar to what Dave said. It's like a the test and then an oral interview. So I, I think that it's different, like throughout the agencies, like what they require as far as like education or experience. But then I know that it also varies. Like you know, you have to do five years on the job or two years minimum on the job before you're eligible to apply for special units or detectives or whatever. Like. SWAT or, um, you know, K nine and things like that. But mm-hmm. it sounds similar for the most part, like, um, to what he's outlined. So, so Dave, let's be, let's be super honest right now. We're going to be super honest. Okay. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Even as a police officer, I've sat in the car with, 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 uh, probationers, rookie cops, and uh-huh. I'm doing work with them and I'm going, what are you doing here? You should, you have no business doing police work. You should not be a police officer. Is it the same? Do you ever get detectives in there and you go, wow. Yeah. How, how did you get that? I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Ken, what type of stuff I'm going to ask you, what type of stuff would that be like? Can you give a specific example of what type of stuff would happen or they would do that would make you be like, Oh my God, what are you doing here? Like just common sense stuff, uh, mm-hmm. tactics, um, uh, not, not being able to talk to people, not being able to write a report. Yeah. Uh, just things like that. And I would think that, um, uh, detective work is just a, it's a bit of a cut above. I mean, you need to, these, you know, a, a copper can write a, a report and it's gotta be spot on, but it's gotta pass the sergeant's 
the sergeant has to sign it off, sign off on it. But a detective, a detective investigation, man, you could go to court. And if this, if that investigation has one flaw in it, like, uh, like, uh, I don't know if this is, this doesn't even apply, but just for the heck of it, the, uh, recently, uh, what's his name? The actor got, he got let go. He got out of prison. Bill, Bill Cosby, Bill Cosby on some kind of technicality, that he made a deal with some other DA yeah, and the, and, yeah. the, and the court said, well, that's not fair because even though he did it and this thing was wrong, they let it, they kicked him loose out of prison and they can't yeah. try him again. So I would think you don't want detectives in there that are going to mess up a case. And then what do you do? What happens? You know? So you have to um, have like an edge for it, I think. For yeah. Sure. yeah. So you, what you, you just got to be up on case law, you know, uh, <laughs> We get bulletins on case laws as detectives. Patrol can get them too, but if you're not up on them, uh, it it's uh, it can be a, a game breaker, game changer. I mean, I can give you an example. Yeah. We um, you remember John McCarley? Yeah. 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 He and I uh, were partners for a while, and um, we got this case where um, a woman, an elderly woman, was. Um, found in her apartment dead uh, by neighbors because she'd been dead for a couple of weeks. So they, they were wondering where she was, but then they, you know, the, uh, the odor started coming through and uh, she was found between her mattresses in her bedroom. Hmm. So what had happened is there was this homeless guy that used to um, help her with her groceries, take them upstairs for her. And one day he saw a bunch of uh, money on her dresser took the money, was taking it, she caught him, and he killed her. And stuffed her, I don't know why, but he stuffed her between the mattresses. So mm -hmm. John McCarley and I found out was, who it was. Uh, he was trying to make her comfortable. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Her journey. Yeah, I don't I don't think he wanted to see the body. I mean, I think he felt bad and uh, just wanted to hide it. I don't know why he didn't just cover her in a blanket I wonder, or something. I wonder why he felt bad. Well, he yeah, didn't feel that right. bad because he took her crap. So yeah, well, he helped her all the time. She was good to him. She was nice to him. Uh, mm. I don't know, but um, people suck, we, man. Yeah, yeah. We brought him into the station and um, we interviewed him for probably five hours straight, and you know, read him his rights and he waived his rights, and um, we um, finally told him we knew his his mother was religious because we had talked to her. Also, so I tell him, um, don't you think God wants you to tell us the truth? The guilt factor, yeah. Yeah, so he could, he still wouldn't confess. Um, but um, his mother told us, she was a God-fearing woman, and she said he has to pay for what he did. And uh, she told us that he confessed to her. So, mm -hmm. but that was that trial. I, I kind of getting ahead of myself but in the at the trial the judge when he heard our our uh our tape interview he made john mccarley and i stand up and he bawled us out for violating his rights by uh using um using religion to try and get a confession so he was going to dismiss the case and his mother came forward and, and told us at a, at a recess in court, she said, he, he confessed to me and I'm willing to testify. So, you know, I, if you can't coerce 
a confession by using uh, religion, um, leniency in sentencing, things like that. And uh, we almost lost that case. So you have to be really up on stuff in order to not, is there, um, when a, when a, when a uh, police officer first gets on the job and they have the goal of becoming a detective, is there, are there things they can do? You were talking about be up on case law and stuff. Is there anything they can do to prepare themselves for being a detective? Yeah, there's, um, there's um, subscriptions you can get and, and I forget the name of it. I'll, I'll have to get it for you and uh, send it to you, but it, it'll, it'll send you monthly um, bulletins, um, case laws, uh, different types of cases, investigative techniques, interview That's techniques. Pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, anybody can get those. So, uh, it, it helps stuff like that helps. Now, when you, when you f- passed the test and they told you you're going to be a detective one, a detective, you didn't go right into homicide. Did you have to, did you have no. to take your turn in the barrel and, and do all these jobs that nobody detectives want to do. Like, what is that? That crimes against person caps. Yeah. Caps, caps, every yeah, little. I, yeah. Did you have to like, do a lot of, uh, what is that like of, fraud, like fraud and, um, uh, that's, that would be like a forgery fraud, uh, crimes against person. Yeah. I was a, a trainee in homicide. I made detective and they put me, uh, in caps as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was handling all uh, domestic violence cases. So I did that for, uh, gosh, maybe a year or so, and then uh, made D2 after a year and went back to homicide. That's pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. I, I was lucky. I, uh, I uh, took an oral, and uh, from, from D1 to D3, there's no more testing, no more written tests. It's all, uh, it's all oral. Yeah, because you've, you've shown that you're capable enough to be a detective, that they wouldn't have put you there if they didn't think you were right. anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think I think it's interesting that uh, once you make detective, and that's just a matter of passing, you have to pass the test, and you have to pass the oral interview, and get ranked. Yes. And then once you become a detective, then you have to you have to people have to like you. Yeah. And I oh, think yeah. they liked you so much. How long did it well, take you from D one to get to D three? It took me. Uh, let me see. Let me look at my uh, retirement flyer real quick over here. <laughs> Ken, look at all those things he's got on his wall. Oh, there's tons of stuff. Cool. I got the. I have, the, re- I, I have the, cool. the one with the with the California state there. That's the that's the plaque they give you when you retire. But Dave's got a shadow box back there. So be you're lot, working. Huh? Be a lot cooler if it was in Arizona state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. See, he's got a revolver in the back there. He doesn't have one of them <laughs> fancy semi-automatics. Yeah. Uh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I made D2 uh, after a year, and making D3 is one of the hardest things. I mean, there's so many D2s that want to be D3s. You go to an oral, and there's maybe 20 guys competing for one spot. So I probably took about seven orals till I finally made D3. And I made D3 after about six years, I believe, of being a D2. Mm. And, um, it, you know, it was, it was a good feeling to make D3 and uh, did it at, uh, at Foothill, as a matter of fact. Foothill. And did yeah, you, we, um, uh, what is, what's on LEPD, this is LEPD specific, because I don't know every rank in every department, but a D3, is that between a sergeant and a lieutenant? 
Yeah, between a sergeant two and a lieutenant. Okay. Uh, a, a D3 is uh, above a sergeant two, but below a lieutenant. All right. So. And to close this section of the question, because we're going to get into some other really cool stuff here. Um, uh, is there uh, is there anything else about becoming a detective that you think would help? I, I don't know. When I when I worked, I just wanted to work patrol for mm-hmm. for about 10 years. Um, and I didn't think about becoming a detective because I thought, oh, that's so boring. But it doesn't seem like it's n- it's not boring. No, just it, different. It's, not, it's different. It's different. And when I made detective, it was a Monday through Friday job, which uh, which made it nice. That's what, I was, that's what I was going to ask you. I think a lot of people <clears throat> like like patrol. And when they go to detective, maybe miss wearing a uniform and miss being on patrol and doing that type of stuff. But it's a different way to kind of help people or contribute to like that part of law enforcement, but also, yeah, the, the schedule is totally different, huh? Like it's more yeah. conducive for family life and things like that. It's like mm-hmm. a seven to five or something like that. It, it is. Uh, unless you're working homicide and you're on call. Right. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to, oh, go is there, is there enough of you that switch off maybe like what, what weeks or, or whatever that you're on call or are you all on call at all times? Uh, well, usually, if you have three teams of two homicide detectives, you're on call every third week. Oh, so that's not bad. And, and anything that happens during that week is your homicide. We're going to get into a little bit more about the schedules for detectives, homicide detectives specifically. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Policebackground.net is the premier background investigation prep site <laughs> with veteran investigator Ken Roybal, who spent 16 years conducting over 1,400 LAPD backgrounds. For more information, go to policebackground.net. We were for you guys that are listening. You don't get to you don't get the privilege of seeing the video. We we were dancing during the song and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh man, Dave, Dave has a good laugh. It's like a it's like a contagious laugh. I got to tell you something funny. Uh, Dave can tell a little bit more about this, and then we'll go on to the the next part. But you know, Dave they had a they had a um, they had a TV show that they were filming. It's similar to Cops. Back in the 90s, maybe like that, something like that. And it was called LEPD Life on the Beat, right? That was the name of it? Dave, Dave, they filmed, they they followed Dave around on this show. And then tell him what happened, Dave. You need to get a copy Uh, of that. Oh, I I wish. No, they never uh, never aired it. Uh. What what happened is uh, our captain told us that LEPD Life on the Beat wants to, uh, I was at Van Nuys Homicide at this point. They want to file when you get a fresh homicide. They want to call, and it's been approved by um, media relations and everything else. So it just happened to be my week that I was on call. We had a murder. Um, I called them up. They met us at the crime scene. We, we, they were with us the whole crime scene. They were with us to some of the investigations. And uh, I told them when uh, when I find out who it is and I get a search warrant to go make the arrest, I'll call you. So we did that. They came out, filmed everything, edited the whole thing, uh, took it to uh, whoever was the the main guy, and he said, we can't show this. And uh, the reason was I smiled too much. Oh. He said, he said, homicide detectives shouldn't be smiling, especially when they're doing a crime scene or he's a civilian telling, 
telling me this. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, when you make an arrest and you, you're putting the guy in your car, you're smiling. And uh, we're not going to show. You're episode. like, God, God forbid I be human and like <laughs> yeah, try to do yeah. what I can to survive in my job without it swallowing me up. So I told him in front of my captain, I said, you're, you are not welcome at any more of my crime scenes. Don't ever expect a call from me anymore. See ya. Dave so. was known for his smile. He's just a happy-go-lucky <laughs> guy. It's like he's like in a homicide scene, just smiling. You know, it's like, what are you gonna I do? I was smiling in front of Marvin Gaye's house when never when I when the, oh, yeah. when the press went out there. So you know when that killed him. The uh, you probably don't know the name Marvin Gaye, Christine, and a lot of our no. listeners probably don't. No, I totally know who that is. Yeah. Oh, What's do you? going on? What's going on? <laughs> Dave was uh, Dave was one of the homicide detectives at uh, Marvin Gaye's crime scene. No, that's crazy. I was a patrol officer at the time. Oh, patrol, patrol. Wait, um, yeah, I didn't we... know he was murdered. Oh yeah, yeah. His dad. His dad killed him. I didn't know that. I mean, I knew who he was. I didn't know that though. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. His house yeah. was in uh, Wilshire Division near the near the Ten Freeway. His dad yeah. just said, "Let's get it on," and killed him, huh? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Let's get it on. <laughs> Oh man, it was crazy. Yeah, his dad shot him. That was pretty sad. That was that is really 1980s, sad. 1980s, something like that. Um, there's there's a couple things I want to I want to talk to uh, Dave about because um, because I think the uh, I think it's important for anybody that wants to be a detective. But basically, uh, more more or less, what's important about your your job was you're a homicide detective, and that was not necessarily Monday through Fridays. Um, every week. And so run us, well, okay. So run us through the, through a typical day for a homicide detective. Uh, we used to start at seven and, uh, you know, we'd go in, have a cup of coffee, watch, uh, watch John McCarley smoke a couple cigarettes. <laughs> Cause back then you could still smoke inside the station mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, maybe attend a patrol roll call and let them know what's going on in certain cases, what we needed, uh, you know, who we would like uh, to talk to if they ran into them, things of that nature. And then we'd, we'd open up our homicide books and, and start, uh, you know, my partner would open one, I'd open a different one, unless it was a fresh homicide, then we'd, we'd work it together and work it until there's no more clues. I mean, you, you just follow up on everything. Um, like, one homicide it wasn't even my homicide um uh, i was assisting on it on it and we worked it two teams four of us worked it for about 50 hours straight no sleep just straight through and then we started taking turns going up to the cot room getting a couple hours sleep and because the case was just rolling and rolling and you know we knew we found out who it was and he was in tucson arizona and uh we had to uh uh, get uh, get the, a team to go up there uh, to get them and uh, talk to them out there. I mean, it, it just kept going and going. And we didn't have, there was no internet at the time. So when we're talking with Tucson PD, we're just, we just happened to have this new thing called a fax machine. Brand so we'd new. Fax, we'd fax, fax over. Uh, State of the art. Yeah, yeah. It faxes this guy's photo and then we'd have to get five other photos and, and run them through the fax machine so they all kind of look similar in texture and stuff and make a six pack that way and, and go to our witnesses and see if they had the right guy. And it did turn out to be the right guy. And uh, John Bardo, Robert Bardo, I'm sorry if you remember that name. 
Oh, the, um, what was her name? Uh, yeah, Rebecca Schaefer. He, Rebecca Schaefer. Yeah. That's an interesting story, Christine. We're, oh, you know what? I want to I get back to that one, too. That was a good story. Okay. You and uh, okay. Paul Coulter were on that, were you not? Well, Paul Coulter and um, uh, Frank Bolin were the primaries. Frank Bolin, all these all yeah. these old school homicide detectives, man. Yeah. Um, then, go ahead. I was just going to say, me and uh, my partner and I uh, uh, were um, secondary. So we were just assisting him. Roger Gilbert, if you remember him. I don't remember him. Um, but as far as, as far as, now tell us about, you know, the homicides didn't happen very often in the daytime unless the body was found in the daytime. So After a lot of times they, happen. Yeah. they wait till you go to right. sleep. And so did exactly. you back exactly. in the day, every, every few weeks you had to have a pager on you or something. Oh, back. To, yeah. We had a pager. Um, but we, if, if there was a homicide, they would call the D three first. And then the D3 would say, okay, this is who I want you to call. These are the guys on call. So they would call us at home. If they couldn't get us at home, then they'd call our pagers. But, yeah, we'd have, we'd have to have a pager, which we paid for ourselves. The city wouldn't buy them for us. <laughs> but you had to That's, have one. That checks yeah. out. Yeah. That checks out. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we'd get paged or, or called. And, you know, most of the time it was 2, 3, 4 in the morning. So, you know, you're in a dead sleep. uh Got to get up, you know. Your or, wife or, pushes you out, of his, or crying in the fe- or crying in the fetal position. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. And hopefully, uh, we didn't spend the day at Tom Bergen's uh, <laughs> on a bar stool drinking drinking beer. You know, it's hard for the wife to wake you up. But no, that's it. That's, that's an story. easy. That's an easy way to get out of it, though, isn't it? <laughs> no, and if it's your case, you go. You go. Well, the uh, the the pagers didn't come out until the. 90s i want to say something in the early 90s so when you were when you were on call for the homicide uh for the homicide on call guy you didn't have a pager did you have to stay at your house and and not go anywhere well if you're going somewhere you call the watch commander and say hey this is where i'm going to be here's the phone number if you're going to go to a family member's house you know you go out to dinner or something hey i'm i'm going to be at uh at this place uh if you need me, just call call this number. But yeah, they had to know where you were at all times if you weren't in the station. And then they wanted you at the crime scene, hopefully within an hour. But you know, they, you'd had a little leeway there because you know if it's two in the morning and you're in bed and your wife pushes you out of bed to get up because <laughs> your overtime doesn't start till you walk into the station. So. Oh, geez. You know, the wife wants a new pair of shoes, so you gotta you gotta get there quick. <laughs> and I'm not being Texas. I'm just trying to be funny. But, yeah. I love you are. I, I love shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you gotta take a shower and and uh, yeah, put on a suit and tie and uh, try to find yeah. out who killed that guy laying on the sidewalk. And it didn't matter what time of the day or night it was. There could be nobody on the street, and you had to show up in a jacket and a tie. Why? Yeah. A- in a suit and tie? Suit and mm-hmm. tie, yep. Huh. So some de- some departments you can wear a you know a, a polo shirt or whatever, okay. but LAPD we we had to wear a, a shirt and tie. And the and uh, it's like patrol, you know, you have a uniform to wear, and that's the detective's uniform. Yeah. So um, now, did you ever get frustrated with uh, on cases 
with the DAs and you thought you had them dead to rights and all this and the DAs wouldn't file? Yeah. I mean, it, it happens a lot, a lot, you know, they, DAs, of course, and you know, you don't blame them, but they, you know, they want, they want a confession. They want the, the murder weapon. And a lot of times we don't have the murder weapon. A lot of times we don't have the confession. All we have is circumstantial evidence that, you know, that shows this guy did it. But the the DA is looking at it like, would a jury convict this guy with this evidence I have? Mm-hmm. And if they feel they they can't convict this guy, they'll reject the case for uh, for further. And you know that that's happened a lot, quite a bit. We had a homicide where uh, um, this restaurant owner. It was like uh, midnight. And uh, it was right on the border, Wilshire bordered Beverly Hills. So it was it was on our side of uh, Doheny. And um, he was uh, on the sidewalk. He had like sidewalk uh, tables where customers could eat. And uh, he was sitting with some customers and he had a Rolex on and two guys jump over the little wrought iron fence and shot him, took his Rolex and ran off and ran to a, a black uh, Camaro sped off you know we got a good description of them got a good description of the car and um we ended up finding the guys and i you know and i'm i'm sure it was them but i I couldn't get the da to file any charges on them because nobody could identify them the two people the the restaurant owner was sitting with couldn't identify the two guys and uh you know it was it was a tough case and it was tough because there's a he had an 11-year-old daughter who just broke down in tears and in the station when we told him that their father passed. and She was crying, and you know, she spoke French and English, and she's praying for God to take her so she could be with her daddy. And mm. It's just tough, tough, tough. Um, before I forget, you mentioned earlier about a six-pack. Tell our, tell our listeners what a six-pack is. Oh, okay. It's, it's an it's a 8 by 10 with uh, six squares cut out in it and you put six photographs, you know, your suspect in one and they're all numbered one through six. Uh, you put the, the, the suspect's photo in one of the um, squares and then you put five similars as best you can around them. And then you, you present that to your witness or the victim, you know, if it's a robbery victim or, or, or an assault victim, and hopefully they can pick out who the suspect is. And that's what the six pack is. Yeah. See if, see, if it was me, I would put the same photo in all six openings. Say, which one is it? <laughs> we <laughs> had a running one? joke. We had a running joke that you'd always put the guy in number two. And when you present the six pack, you're tapping your <laughs> finger on number two. <laughs> you recognize anybody? <laughs> which one is it? Of course we never did that. Okay, Dave, I'm going to ask you a hard question. But I got to know. I got to know the answer. The truthful answer. The truthful answer. Okay. I've I've seen and I watch a lot of news and stuff. And I watch, I, you know, these murder these murder investigations and things. Uh-huh. And a murder will happen, and they, you know, the only evidence they have is a piece of hair off a of fly's butt. And they go, we've arrested the suspect. I'm like, how do you guys do that, man? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's nothing there. And a, a couple of weeks later, we caught the guy. I'm like, 
Well, how did you do that? Yeah. yeah. How did you do that? <laughs> I, I wish, uh, I wish I had a few cases like that, but it, nothing's <laughs> ever that, nothing's ever that easy. The, but the only see- way if, if the suspect knew the victim and you have an eyewitness that that's, those are the easiest ones. Well, that, you know what I'm talking about though? I mean, when you hear these kind of stories that they have yeah. nothing to go on. Oh but yeah. There was a story, um, maybe about three weeks ago, something like that, where the little boy on a Southern California freeway, he was riding with his mom and then he was in the back seat and she got into it with somebody in another car and they shot Orange into County. the car. Huh? Orange County. In Orange yeah, Orange County. County. And yeah. they killed the little boy. Mm-hmm. But all they had, I think, was the car description. And then how did, how did how they get to the part where all they had, they didn't have a license number, they didn't have nothing, and they somehow, and then they even got to the point where people were, they arrested the guy and the girl that was in the car with him. Mm-hmm. And then they ha- also found they were publishing, not detectives, but just people on Instagram were publishing his Instagram page. Like, <laughs> how well, did they, I think uh, the reward had a lot to do with that. I think it was uh, a half a million. Was, I don't remember. It was a lot. If I'm yeah. not mistaken, I think it was like 500,000. So some, somebody, somebody rolled on him. Somebody, uh, somebody called in and said, Hey, uh, this is who did it. He's, Oh, this where, okay. This is where his car is. And, uh, you know, give me my code number so I can collect when he's convicted. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I love you. I love you, man. Family. Yeah. Five hundred thousand dollars? I don't. I don't love you that much, bro. <laughs> I think that's what happened. I think that's what happened. Okay, so reward money could have a lot to do with people. Just go. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I'm not that loyal. Yeah. So yeah, let's right. get, man. Let's get into some stories because I know you got some some stories that'll interest. Uh, just just because war stories are always good, but homicide stories. Give uh, us give us uh, some stories that we can uh, that we can uh, talk about. Well, uh, let's see. I got one. God, there's so many. At Wilshire, back in 1989, I think we had 83 murders in one year. And that was a, was a lean year, wasn't it? It was a lean year, right? <laughs> I mean, there's so many murders. And I, we had one uh, on Washington Boulevard. This guy, his nickname was Pops. And um, he was a street guy. And, you know, everybody loved him. And somebody that's that's him. Ken's That's Ken's nickname. Papi, Papi Chulo. Papi. <laughs> but it was Pops, so we found out who did it, um, arrested him, got him convicted. And about two years later, there was a, a string of uh, robberies going on all over the city in uh, South Central LA. And uh, it was two females and one male, and there were brutal bank robberies where they would pistol whip the, the witnesses and the security guard and everybody else and take the money. And one day I'm at work and this female calls me and says, I'm not going to identify myself, but thank you for solving pop's murder. This is who's doing the robberies. These are the two girls names. Ooh. So, <laughs> you know, I called a uh, robbery homicide division downtown and they, they put a tail on them and uh, sure enough, it was them. They caught them doing a robbery, a bank robbery. So, that's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's just one story. That's one success story. So yeah, tips. You know, we, we solved a homicide and got some brutal bank robbers off the street. Very cool. What uh, do you have any stories? I I don't know why I'm asking this, but I'm just interested. 
there's there's sometimes people don't really realize that they you know you hear a news story and it was like you know a murder victim was found but do you have any stories where that where it was just like this bad bad crime scene like a oh <clears throat> the worst one i've ever been on was uh uh this guy was found in his apartment uh strangled stabbed maybe 50 60 times just brutal brutal and he was uh face down prone on his bed in the they had a pillow over his back and he was strangled. Uh, I mean, just blood everywhere. I mean, it just, you just had to watch where you stepped and everything else. And he was choked with the tie and uh, gosh, I, well, shoot, I'm retired uh, on the tie. It said <laughs> made especially for mayor Tom Bradley. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Where did that tie come from? Hmm. Yeah. Where did he get it? How did this guy get this tie? Yeah, but I mean, t- Tom Bradley had no connection to this at all. This guy just—I uh, don't know if he got it at a Tom Bradley, maybe turned it into a, a Salvation Army or something. Didn't like the color or something, and and this guy picked it up. But yeah, it was brutal. That that was brutal. Uh, stabbings are really bad. Um, uh, gosh, one guy uh, was killed. He uh, suffocated. They taped him up. He, uh, he had a, a, a drug debt that he didn't pay, so they got him, taped him up, taped his head with duct tape like a mummy, and he, uh, he uh, suffocated on that. Mm. And uh, he had uh, brutal things uh, uh, done to his body, you know, putting things where they, where they have no business being, things like that. And uh, we had the coroner cut the tape off his head and took it apart and we send it to the lab and we got a fingerprint off the backside of the duct tape. We found out who, who taped, who taped this guy up. And, uh, it was a female, as a matter of fact, that did the taping. I I wondered, I wondered. Yeah. But she said that she didn't kill him. You know, she was, she was with the guys that killed him and, and Mm. she gave us, we got all the names and everything else, but yeah, everyone was convicted on that. So that, that, that was, uh, you know, it's not often you get a fingerprint like that. So she put duct tape on his head and didn't kill him. I would assume that I killed him if I taped his head with duct yeah, tape. Yeah, yeah. Well, she she said the other guys are the ones that beat him up as he was taped up, and you know they they're the ones that probably killed him, not her. Mm. You know, on on patrol, you get all the fresh stuff. You know, you get the you get the drive by shootings, the bodies laying in the street. The robbery victims, the guy, the 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 people that are laying in their homes because they the neighbor smells something coming out of yeah, the apartment. Right, you go in right. and go whoa, and they're melting into the floor. Yeah, um, you know, purple. Yeah, people that have been there for two weeks, they look like like dried up chicken, and oh, uh, yeah. the maggots are coming out of their bodies and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, or they're bloated. Yeah, yeah, well, the bloated ones are scary. Yeah, because they they could explode any minute. Yeah. You don't, like those there when you don't want to be there when the coroner technician is wrapping up the body. No, no, no. You no. don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's kind of nasty. Yeah. One time, um, I can't remember who I was with. It was working days. You remember that? Remember that Burger King right there at Highland and uh, Highland and Wilshire? Oh yeah, yeah. It was a Burger King. So they, we got a call there on patrol. It was in daytime, 
And we get there in this, uh, uh, they were smelling something from this lady's apartment. And it was, uh, she's an older lady. And we go in there and she's sitting, <laughs> it was warm outside, but apparently I guess that she died at night or something like that. So she's sitting in her chair and the, t- you know how like older people, they can't sit in their little favorite chair in the living room and, and they're watching the TV and um, she had the heater on, but the heater was right next to her. So she's like oh, shake and bake man. right there, man. Uh, and so she's baking overnight and she's not quite done, but you know. Um, so we get in there and I'm and we're just like, Yeah, she's pretty dead. Ambulance. Yeah, and dead. then you have the hot air blowing it around the house. Hot, hot air. <laughs> yeah. We had to turn that crap off, man. And uh, so, but the way she died was she died sitting in her chair and then she kind of slumped forward when she died. I don't know if she had a heart attack or whatever, but so, anyway, she slumped forward. So then rigor mortis started. She probably had too much. In. She probably had too much Burger King. <laughs> so rigor mortis starts setting in, and Whopper. so now she's now she's stuck in this position. And finally, the coroner gets there. We're waiting for the coroner, and we're just like, uh, you know, I got other things to do. So the coroner finally gets there, and he 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 picks her up when he's done with his little investigation. Because they, anyways, so he picks her up and he puts her on the gurney, but she's still like in a fetal position because she's now she's stuck like that because oh, her body's yeah. stiff. He goes, can you help me with this? Because we got to, she can't, she can't nope, be nope, nope, going nope, out. Nope. <laughs> she can't go out on the gurney outside in this little ball like this, right? So I go, sure. So he takes her knee and pushes on her shoulder and he, he, he opens up, you know, it pushes her straight. And when she opened up, she goes, oh, and I'm like, oh, oh no. my God, that was awful. Uh, that was so awful. She, she whispers in your ear. She's all, <laughs> Poppy. <laughs> Those are the things uh, that you do not forget. No, no. You know, but uh, I've, I, I know you've seen tons and tons of some bad, bad stuff out there. Do you, um, so in closing, Dave, um, there's no way that you can, that a police officer, let alone a homicide detective. Because as, as a homicide detective, I mean, as a police officer, you go to some crime scenes and the people have been there, they got murdered, uh, they're all chewed up, their bodies are messed up and all this kind of stuff because of the horrible things that have been done to them. But that's like, you maybe, I don't know, you don't go in murder scenes every day or whatever. Um, you're not right. pouring through a, a murder book and going looking, you know, reviewing the photos and all this for all the different murders. And... Um, there's no escaping that this stuff can mess with your mind. So how did you get away from like going to the bottle and just like trying to forget? Uh, gosh, it, it was tough, but I had a good home life. I never brought my work home, never brought it home. You know, once, once I left the station, I, I didn't discuss it at home. Um, you know, I had a supportive wife and that helps. And that's why when we do backgrounds now, we always talk to the significant other and say, hey, he, this he or she is going to need a lot of support. Are, are you are you up for this? Are you are you willing to help your significant other be a good police officer? Because they're going to need they're going to depend on you. And, you know, if if they can't handle it, he's not going to he or she's not going to make it through the job because you need you need that home support. And you had a can you you made you've been married forever. I mean, mm-hmm. you you've seen things that that people shouldn't see, but you know that's what we sign on for. And that's what we do. 
Somebody's got to do it. Yeah. And so when you go into police work, guys, um, you're going to see stuff that you, that most people will not see. And if you want to be a detective and make your way up through the ranks and become a homicide detective, there's going to be some disgusting, horrific, horrific stuff um, that people do to other people. And you just, you have to go in with the mindset that you are going to take care of your, your mentals, you know, uh, yeah. your emotional status too, because you can't go in and go, this is so exciting because I, I don't think Dave walked into the office every day and go, we got this other murder boss and um, here's the book. And I don't think Dave sat there and go, this is so cool. I don't think he yeah. did that. No, no. It might, um, it might be a stupid like analogy, but it it's kind of like if you go to the movies or whatever, and you're watching like a really bad horror film and it really kind of like, it gets to you. Like it's a good horror mm-hmm. film in the sense that it's scary. But when you walk out of the movie theater, you kind of have to realize that it was just a movie that you're walking out of. And I mean, it's harder in this sense because it's not a movie like that's reality. Yeah. yeah. But you kind of have to separate yourself from that. Like I'm leaving this I'm leaving this behind. And this was a movie that I watched or this was just a case that I was working on. This is work and be able to detach and go home. What would you say Mm -hmm. that that's kind of maybe a similar. That's that's spot on. Spot on. I agree. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, we'd stay on a murder until all the necessary stuff needs to be done on a fresh murder. And yeah. then, we'd, then we'd go home. And, you know, if it took a, if it took a day, if it took two days, three days, I mean, you just keep going until, until all the necessary stuff is done, all the things you have to do. And then you could always get back to it the next day. Yeah. You know, one thing that that uh, I think about too is, uh, did did divisional homicide units deal with child abuse homicides? That no. would be the worst. No, no, I, I no, those, that was handled. The child abuse unit would handle all uh, child abuse homicides. Did you ever think about going to do that? No, no. That Not, that uh, would I, be, I, I, I think, the epitome of hell. Yeah, I I couldn't do that in the. Or sex crimes where uh, where a child was involved. There's there's no way because, you know, children are they're innocent, and when somebody does something like that to them, I mean, oof, it's it's tough. It's hard to control. You got to be a special I, person to do that. Yeah, we're. I was talking with somebody, um, Bill, uh, Steve. Um, Steve did an interview with uh, Bill Urudia. Oh really? All right. Yeah. yeah. He did a, he did an interview with Bill Rudy and I don't remember if he was assigned how he was assigned to this case but it was a it was a uh, uh I think it was a homicide of a uh, of a child. And this is I mean oh, gosh you and I've known Bill for probably close to 40 years. Right. So yeah. this was a long a long time ago and we just did this this interview with him maybe a year and a half ago something like that. And it still chewed him up. And when he was talking about it, he started crying during uh, the interview yeah. with this yeah. about this child. Um, so you can't, you know, when you go into when you go into police work and detective work, it's not like it's not like the TV. It's not like the TV, and you've got to if you if it gets to you, you've got to take care of that. And uh, I got well, to hand it, it to you, Dave. It would be hard to separate that from like <laughs> if you had a kid the same age, or I don't know, man. It would just like it would be too hard to associate it with your own. One of one of my it's funny you said that one of the first times I went to the coroner's office uh, to do my first uh, homicide autopsy, 
Um, I mean, I wasn't doing it. You have you have to go and observe. If it's your case, you have to go and and uh, be able to testify to the cause of death. So you have mm-hmm. to be there when the doctor performs the autopsy. I walk in the hall, and there were so many dead bodies in there. They were all covered. I saw this one gurney with this little arm sticking out. Oh. And I had to go look to make sure. I knew it wasn't my daughter because she was that same age. My my oldest daughter, who's 38 now. I mean, she was she was two at the time, three at the time, I think. And I saw this little arm, and I had to go, and I knew it wasn't her, but I had to pull that tarp off to make sure it wasn't. I mean, it was mm, heartbreaking. Mm. This poor little girl fell out of a two-story window and she was at the coroner's office to make sure that that was the cause of death, you know, that mm. she wasn't thrown out dead and the pa- family was trying to cover it up. But it's yeah. tough. I mean, there, there's, like you said, uh, to all police applicants, there's there's things, you got to be prepared for it. And if it affects you, you, you got to talk to somebody, you know, yeah. you, you can't hold it in. Yeah, I, and there, I, there's I, people. The Dave and I talked to hundreds of police applicants, and a, a lot of times when you talk to them, they're nervous. But if you're kind of talking them off the side, they're just excited. They're like excited to be a cop because, because they think of the lights and the sirens and things. But yeah. at the end of those yeah. lights and sirens, there could be there could be a murder victim. Right. At yeah. the end, you know. <clears throat> so you just it's not it's not a job for everybody, but you just need to prepare yourself. Yeah. Um, Dave, before we go, before we end this, can you tell us about you were involved in a pretty uh, a pretty uh, famous case at the time? Uh, can you tell us about the uh, Rebecca Schaefer murder? Uh, yeah, that. Gosh, what what year was that? Uh, this uh, this was the Tucson one you said, right? Yes, okay. yes. Well, it happened in L.A., but the guy was from Tucson. Gotcha. What had happened is uh, he was a stalker. He uh, he was in love with uh, Rebecca Schaefer. Uh, she was a co-star in My Sister Sam. I mean, that's an old television series. And she got a part um, in a movie, um, Life and Times in Beverly Hills or something okay. like that. And she had a a, a, a bedroom scene with, uh, with her boyfriend or whatever. And this guy, Robert Bardo, just, he freaked. He said she became a Hollywood whore, that he, he was going to kill her. And he had stalked her before. He tried to meet her at the studios, and they wouldn't let him in. They threw him out. He'd send her letters, all these things. And uh, he finally found out who, uh, where she lived. By uh, Back then, you could go to the Department of Motor Vehicles, and for 10 bucks, you can give them a name, and they'll tell you where that person mm-hmm. lives. Yep. Or give them a license plate, and they'll tell you who owns that car. And this yep. case is what changed all that. But... Uh, he went to her house, knocked on the door. She came down and she uh, she saw him and she said, you know, get away from me. I, I you know, I, I don't know you. I don't want to talk to you. She slammed the door on him. He walked away and he went and had breakfast and he realized, hey, I came here to, to meet her and, and to kill her. So he went back, knocked on the door and she thought it was going to be the script for this movie. It was going to be Godfather 3. That's the movie she was mm. going to do. She mm-hmm. had a part in that. She was waiting for that <laughs> script. And uh, he, she opened the door, and there he was with the gun, and he, he shot her. He shot her right in the chest, and she fell over, and he ran off. And uh, uh, we, uh, some of the neighbors you know, saw this guy earlier, so that's how uh, we, we, we didn't know who it was at first, but it was Paul Coulter and uh, Frank Boland's case. Uh, 
So they were doing the crime scene. My partner and I were at the station doing all of the admin stuff, you know, getting phone calls, uh, things of that nature. We, we worked about 24 hours later. We get a call from Tucson PD saying, hey, we got this guy that was running in and out of traffic, wanted to kill himself. And he said he just killed somebody in, in uh, Los Angeles. And we know that uh, you guys had a homicide out there. So we had, they faxed us his picture. We put a six pack together. My partner and I went and knocked on doors and a couple of the neighbors recognized him and said, yeah, we saw him walking around earlier. And uh, it, it turned out it was him. He came, uh, Paul Coulter and uh, Frank Bolin brought him back to LA. They flew out to Tucson, stayed there a couple of days. Uh, he waived extradition, came back to LA. Because if you're in another state, and you're caught for a crime. If you're in Arizona, you're caught for a crime that happened in in uh, California. Did I say that right? You're in Arizona, but you did a crime in California. Uh, you have to get extradited, and that could take months. But he waived yeah. extradition. In the meantime, uh, a local Tucson newspaper called. I answered the phone, and I, I was talking to him about the case, and uh, they said, well, do you think he's crazy? And I'm not about to give him a defense. I'm not going to say, yeah, he's nuts. Mm -hmm. I just said, well, I don't, that, that's up to the, the courts to decide. You know, he knew what he was doing. He, he found out where she lived uh, by going to the Department of motor, motor Vehicles. He went to the house. He bought a gun and he killed her. So, you know, is that crazy? You know, and uh, when they brought him back to Wilshire Division, he asked for me. He said, I want to speak to Detective Scotto. Mm -hmm. So Paul said, hey, uh, he wants to talk to you. I went into the interview room. He stood was, up. He goes, go Was ahead. that kind of creepy? Yeah, because I didn't know what he wanted. I mean, right. Or why guy, you? Yeah. Yeah. Why Why me? Why ask for Detective Escoto? So uh. I, you know, I, I opened the door and he stood up, put out his hand and he goes, I want to thank you for telling the press I wasn't crazy. And I said, well, you're welcome. And I'm, I'm not shaking your hand. So sit down. I sit back. Yeah. Down. So, <laughs> He just sat down and then uh, he confessed everything, not to me, but to the detectives. But uh, what the hard part of that one was uh, uh, the parents lived in uh, Seattle and um, they were getting phone calls from Rebecca's friends saying she was murdered. She was murdered and they didn't have it confirmed. So they called the station and I happened to answer the phone and the mother saying, you know, she said, I'm Rebecca's mother. You got to tell me. Is she? Is she dead? You know, was she killed? Mm. And I knew Seattle PD was on their way there because I had just spoken to them and said, hey, can you go do a notification for us? Because you, you don't do it over the phone. You get the local mm. jurisdiction to go do the notification for you. But she was so distraught. And I just told her, you know, I, I told her, yes, she, she's been murdered. She's no longer, you know, she's she's gone. And uh, in court, she thanked me. She said, you know, that was one of the nicest things you could have done. Mm. That sticks with yeah. you. Yeah. It hits, it hits home. And that I was, mean, uh, good. you know, just to, you know, tell a mother over the phone that her daughter's dead, you know, you, you don't, that's something you don't do, but the circumstances I had to, I had to. Well, she caught kind of caught you off guard too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. you know, the, the saving grace was we knew who did it and, he was coming back to California and, you know, he was going to get, he, he took a trial by, uh, by court. 
so they wouldn't do the death penalty. And, you know, he was convicted. He's doing life. I, I thought he, he uh, tried to uh, plead uh, insanity. He did not. Yeah, well, I don't think so. I don't remember. I think, he pled, I think he pled not guilty. The judge. I forget who the judge was. Was it Lancito? Could have been Lancito at the time. I don't know. Interesting. Lancito. Yeah. Lancito was the judge in the uh, OJ trial. In the OJ, oh, and, wow. the and the husband of our the detective lieutenant. Yeah, she was a detective oh, lieutenant. I remember you just mentioning that, Ken. Yeah, and then she was she ended up being my patrol captain too. So after uh, she uh, she left detectives, but uh, I'll tell you that uh, this has been a pretty good episode, Dave. Um, and I got to thank you for coming on. Uh, for uh, people that want to, you know, there's there we'll be doing more of these a day in the life of. But I think that uh, homicide detectives is kind of an interesting thing and how people get into that. Um, and so uh, I guess got to thank you for that. Dave and all these years of friendship. Uh-huh. It's been my amazing. Pleasure, my, my pleasure. But uh, yeah, if anybody has any questions for Dave, send uh, send me um, your questions, and I'll I'll have him answer them and answer them on a uh, future podcast. Um, and you can get a hold of me at Ken at policebackground.net. And uh, other than that, Christine, do you have anything? Oh, geez. I don't know. I feel like I could listen to you talk and like probably talk to you all for a long time, like all day. But um, no, this has been a lot of fun. And, and I, like I said, I've, I've listened to your interview on the other podcast and that was entertaining, too. So it's there's <laughs> never you. a shortage of, of stuff that you can share from your experiences, I'm sure. But uh, this has been fun. We really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Thank yeah, and you, if you guys, thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, and if you want to, if you guys want to listen uh, to the Things Police See podcast episode with Dave, go to thingspolicee.com, pull up that episode. I don't know what number it is, uh, but it'll be Dave Escoto in there, and uh, I'm sure that's a, an amazing. I, I listened to it. I don't know how many years ago it was, but I listened to that one. And I think it was. Um, I think it was two years ago. Two years ago, Dave. Dave does a good interview. So, um, well, thank you so much. And, uh, we will talk to you guys soon and, uh, hope you enjoy this podcast. We will be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to the police applicant podcast. We are the premier police background prep site in the U S and Canada. For more information on scheduling your police background consultation, go to policebackground.net. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes.